Paul writes that you must confess with your tongue that Jesus is Lord. Why is authority so important to the gospel? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Seitz. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. Churches typically spend a lot of time talking about Jesus as Savior. And it's kind of understandable, right? Because, like, the basic thing that that God, you know, Christ talked about hell a lot because it is about being saved from damnation. And so him being a Savior is an important thing. But when Paul writes about the gospel in Romans 10, 8 through 10, he says, But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. He's making a big deal about saying that Jesus is Lord. Not just that he's your Savior, but that he's your Lord. And that, you know, very specifically, with the heart one believes unto righteousness, meaning that that there's obedience there. So why is authority so important to the gospel? I think part of the reason this is really important for us to talk about is that it's so easy for us to read a verse like this from Romans 10, and we read Lord Jesus, and we think that that's just his name. We think we're just so familiar with that kind of language, especially if you've grown up in the church, if you have kind of a Sunday school upbringing, that it's just become so familiar that you have to step back from it, turn your head sideways, and read it again and say, wait, that word Lord, it has meaning to it. It has content to it. It's not just a title, even though it is a title, but it's a title that's got meaning behind it, that when Paul's saying that, I mean, he's saying a political statement to say that Jesus is Lord, that was the really offensive thing to say to the Romans. Because the Romans are fine. You can believe in whatever God you want as long as you are willing to say that Caesar is Lord. You can't say somebody else is Lord. And so what he's saying here is, some, is very countercultural, that, that the gospel is going to poke at those things that the culture says don't poke at. And if you've listened to any of other, our other podcasts, one of the major themes that we have is that the gospel is much bigger than salvation, that the gospel encompasses many, many other things other than just the salvation of individual sinners. It's about so much more about reversing the effects of sin throughout the culture. And if the gospel is about those things happening, the question is, is, well, why do they happen? How do they happen? Well, they happen because Jesus is Lord. They happen because Jesus has authority. And and it really is about, you know, he's Paul is tying this to the salvation, right? You have to believe, you have to confess, you have to say that Jesus Christ is my Lord. And so he's tying it that, you know, it's easy for us to separate it from salvation, but you can't separate it from salvation in, in Paul's writing about what salvation is. You have to see Christ for who he is. He's the Lord of all, right? But you have to see him as Lord. If you don't accept his authority, you're not a Christian. I mean, when you look at, like, the earthly concept of lords, you know, like, you know, when something, because someone can be your king and not be your lord. You had, There were a lot of people who had a king, and he wasn't necessarily their lord, that he did not have, I mean, because a lord has a lot of authority, has a massive amount of authority over an individual. I mean, even to the point where he could, like, order them to go do something, like, where they would likely die doing it that he had real authority over their under life. Under Romans law, they could kill them. And so, I mean, and when so often lords, I mean, when someone made someone their lord, it was frequently done with an oath. You know, I mean, there was this part of it. I mean, and there was this part of it. And so, I mean, when you look at it, it's not like just going, I, I recognize that he's, you know, I mean, that they frequently they would come, they would bow down before the person, they would kneel, they would say, they would, they would tell, you know, they would, they would swear an oath to serve them as a lord. They would declare it, and then they would also expect them to act as if they were their lord. I mean, so when you see these two things, these aren't just like arbitrary things, and this is this is part of what's so dangerous about like the salva- the sinner's prayer, is because there's this idea that just asserting something is the same as believing it and meaning it and it being this thing that you understand and you you understand the implications of. No one would want someone to become a Lord who didn't understand, to say that you were his Lord and you didn't understand what you were doing. It would be a pointless exercise. 
And I mean, I do think it's very much like what Jonathan was saying, is that we've just started to take these things as titles. And it's like the president. We say about President Biden, well, that means he presides, right? He presides over the executive branch. That's not what we think of as a president. We think of as a president as he's introducing legislation and all this other stuff. No, he's supposed to he's supposed to preside over the executive branch. That's why he's called president, because it really is defining what his role is in Lord, which is the term for slave master or, you know, that that term there. I mean, it really means that you become a slave of righteousness. You become a slave of Christ. And so when you say he's your Lord, it is turning authority on its head. Because ever since the fall, man has wanted to say, I'm in charge of myself. There is no God. I'm like God. I know good and evil. And uh, you bring up the fall. I mean, and th- let's, let's go and look at Genesis 3, 4 through 6. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And so, I mean, you can see here, I mean, Adam and Eve are made. They're put in the garden. They're, they're clearly put there to, to fulfill a role that God has made for them, to serve God. And the actions that Eve is doing here is not the actions of one who is following her Lord. It's not the one who is following the commands that were given her. It is her defying those commands. I mean, she knew. Because when she walked up, when the, this began, no, we can't, we, we shouldn't even touch it. We shouldn't even touch the fruit. I mean, so her even, the level at which she understood she should not deal with it was she was expressing, I shouldn't even touch it. And now, one, you know, a couple of sentences later, she's eating it and she is, she is openly, she is defying her Lord. And she's, yeah, she's doing the works of her father, which is Satan, right, once she eats it. Because what he did is he basically said, God is not my Lord, right? I mean, that's what Satan's fall is all about, is he goes, I'm going to rule. That's what the temptation with Christ is in the wilderness. It's about Satan going, I own the world. It's mine. I control it. I'm Lord. And so throughout the when Satan falls in the first place, when Eve falls, when Adam, instead of obeying God, obeys his wife. I mean, all these things are related to, I mean, this, the fall is about authority. It's the rejecting the authority of God and saying, I'm a better authority myself than God is as an authority. And salvation is flipping that on its head and going, I'm a lousy authority. I need a real one. I need God to be my authority. And it's very important to point out as we talk about this. <clears throat> that a person's acceptance of God as your Lord does not negate the fact that he is the Lord of the earth. I mean, we've talked about this in other episodes, and it's one of these things that when you become a Christian, God does not suddenly become your Lord, and before he had no authority over you, this is you acknowledging the authority he already had. This is you acknowledging, because in the end, every man on earth owes God his service. Every man on earth owes God his life. And so there is this part of it where, you know, you don't want to have this, don't deceive yourself. This isn't, we're not making God a Lord. God is a Lord. This is about the rec- the recognition of his place. And back, you know, back in the the days when this was, you know, the, the earthly civil governments more lined up with this. I mean, you had an idea where, you know, the king was, you know, the Lord. I mean, there were, you know, lower lords, but let's just take the king, you know, and he would want you at certain points to swear you know, an oath of loyalty to him, acknowledging him as your Lord. But he still said he was your Lord, whether or not you swore it. Now, you might be a traitor, and you might end up getting put to death because you won't swear the oath and submit yourself to the king. But it doesn't mean that he's not still your king. Or you'd be an outlaw, right, where he'd go, I'm not going to protect you. You're in my kingdom, but as far as I'm concerned, because you won't acknowledge me as Lord, you'll receive. Anybody can do whatever they want to you. Which is very much still the picture because God is the Lord of all the earth. He is the Lord of lords. He is the King of kings. And as that, he has that position. And some people he just turns over to Satan because they basically become outlaw. They refuse to accept his his lordship. And so therefore, you know, God turns them over to the hardness of their heart. You see that in Romans 1. You see that in other places. And it's really just that rejection can come to the point where God just goes, I'll make you an outlaw, meaning outside the protection of the law. Well, you know, you hear the phrase a lot, you know, I accept Jesus as my Lord. Like, well, not not really accurate because that's not really how it works. He is the Lord, 
Um, and it's not a matter of whether you accept him or not. It's a matter of whether you submit to him and acknowledge him for who he is. And it's more than acknowledge, which is, you know, I'm, the right term, whether it's accept or acknowledge, all of them have some, you know, frailty to them. They don't quite encompass it because there are lots of people that can acknowledge that God's their Lord and not be saved. I know of people that acknowledge that God's their Lord. They're saying, there is a God. I have to submit to him, but I'm not willing to submit to him, but I know I'll be judged for it. But yet, that's not salvation. Salvation is actually saying it's a good thing that he's my Lord, and not just, I know he's Lord. How about confess? Confess is the biblical term. Sure. So what's what is that grab that accept or acknowledge is missing? The confess in Greek, that word confess means that the words that you're speaking and the thoughts that you're thinking are aligned with one another. And so when you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, it means that you believe he's Lord and you're telling other people that he's Lord and your words match your thoughts. So basically you're being honest. Yeah. And so that's confessing that he's Lord is different than just acknowledging that he's Lord. And a verse that gets to this is Isaiah 45, uh, verses 22 through 24. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. He shall say, Surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come, and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. And and you kind of have two different two different thoughts here, which is uh, you have a call to salvation, and then you also have the promise that eventually every knee will bow. But the people that waited until the end of time to bow the knee, they are um, they will be ashamed, they will be condemned uh, because they did not look to him and be saved when they had the opportunity earlier. Right. When it's when it's quoted in the New Testament, the context is much more when Jesus Christ comes back and resurrects everyone. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And But when you read in Isaiah, the focus is actually on you have to do it now. And yes, that is true. God is going to cause everyone to submit to him. Everyone will recognize and accept that he is Lord, whether they like it or not. They will believe that. They will treat him as Lord by bowing down before him. But what Isaiah is writing and saying, and what God's speaking through Isaiah and saying, now you have to bow down. Now you have to. You have to say, surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. You have to say it's from him. You have to say it's because he's your Lord. You have to acknowledge him. You have to bow your knee. You have to confess with your tongue. These are the things that you have to do in order to be saved because it is the opposite of what the fall is. The fall is, I'm God. And salvation is, you're God. And it may seem elementary to point this out, but when somebody becomes a Christian, they are not making God their Lord. He already was their Lord. He is Lord of all. It's they are confessing that. They are acknowledging. They are they are responding. They are coming to terms with the the reality that's already there and submitting to him. They're not making him Lord. And so when you think of that too, what's really important to recognize when you confess that he's Lord, it's not like you're going, he's a bad Lord. You're going, he's a better Lord than I am. When you look at the Isaiah 45 passage, where it says, surely in the Lord, I have righteousness and strength. What you're saying is, salvation is saying, I now see who God is. And God is a better Lord than I am. I want him for my Lord rather than me being Lord of my life. If I'm Lord of my life, it's terrible. If, I, if he's Lord of my life, I have righteousness and strength. And so it's, it's this, he's not just going, I'm going to force you to bend your knee. He's going, he opens your eyes so that you go, I want to bend my knee. And this is, that's a really important distinction because one of the things is in the confession, in salvation, it says very specifically that God does no violence to the will. The second part of that, those who at the end are forced to bow, it is not, I mean, this is God's authority over man's will even because at the end, it does not say that the people at the end of time who are condemned, who are brought before him, that he does this without violence to their will. They are caused to bow their will. They are, they are forced to acknowledge him because God has authority over man's will. The fact that God in salvation does it without violence to the will is not some limitation of God, and it's not something that is that he withholds. It is something he has reserved for those who are his enemies. And we see this like in, in a courtroom. 
if when the judge walks in, if you don't stand up, they'll put you under contempt of court because you have to stand up. You're not now if you're in a wheelchair or something. Obviously, there's exceptions, but the rules are you have to show that honor. It doesn't matter whether you think he's judge or that he's a good judge or a bad judge. It doesn't matter. You have to stand up when he goes into the courtroom, or they will arrest you. And in a harsher day, they would have made you bow. You would right. have, you know, what I mean, and this is, and this is, God does not need someone to hit you in the back of the knees. God does not need to have someone push you down. If God says to you, you will bow and you will confess that your mind and your thoughts will be aligned, they will be aligned, and you will say it, and you will mean it, and you will believe it, and then you'll be cast into hell. Yes, if you do it after after death, and that is, and that people should not think that is not true. So the Isaiah passages from the Old Testament. When you go to the New Testament, I want to end up in Matthew 28. But to get there, it's worth it's worth walking through just what happens in Matthew. What's one of the major themes in Matthew? And one of the major themes is in Matthew is establishing the authority of Jesus Christ. It starts in the very beginning where you get these genealogies that show he's descended from kings. And we know from the Old Testament that he would be descended from kings. So, you know, this is he's king of kings. But then as the book develops, you see that over and over and over there are these episodes establishing that Jesus has authority. He has authority over sickness. He has authority over death. He has authority over the winds and the waves. He has authority over the political and the religious leaders. This, there's the great spirits. episode. Yeah, over, over the unclean spirits. And, and they even argue with him over this, like, because they acknowledge that he has authority over them. I was going to say, they don't really argue. They kind of plead. <laughs> right, like leave us alone because they recognize. <laughs> or and, uh, put us in those pigs rather than casting us out. Right? And, and when you go through that book, it's all about establishing the authority of Jesus. And then the book ends, and the book ends with passages that we're all very familiar with, Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen to 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So we're familiar with this passage because this is the Great Commission. This is where you're, you're encouraged to go out and tell the gospel. So, so okay, this is a, very clearly a passage that's about the gospel. We all know that. We've all grown up with that. And we think that that's what the really important part here is. is and it's, it is really important. This tells me what I ought to be doing with my time. But if you've been tracking the book of Matthew as it goes, you realize the climax of the book of Matthew is not the Great Commission. It's the verse that comes right before that where Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's what Matthew has been building up to, is that this guy has authority, and then he died and rose again, and now all authority has been given to him. After that, when somebody says that, when somebody says all authority has been given to me— On heaven and earth. On heaven (laughs) and on earth. You know what he can say after that? Anything he pleases. Right. Anything he pleases, because all authority has been given to him. So it's really important that you listen to what comes next. But the reason you listen to what comes next is because this is the guy who said, I have all authority. And Matthew's been building up to this. This is, this is the tension that's, that's been just slowly percolating through the book. And then it's resolved when Jesus rises from the dead and shows that he has authority over the grave. And you tie this to Romans 10, right? Because it's easy for us to read baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and think that's not related to authority. But when you look at Romans 10, where Paul goes, they have to confess with their tongue that Jesus is Lord. Otherwise, you don't baptize them. And so this is still, the baptism is about them acknowledging that Jesus is Lord. They're acknowledging that they're dying and living and walking in the newness of life. I mean, that's what it's about, that no longer is Satan their father. God is now their father. He has authority over them. And so it's easy to take this, you know, that first part, all authority has been given to me. The last part, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded, which is clearly about authority, and think that the middle part isn't. But the middle part is as much about authority as the first part and the third part. The second part, that's how you come to salvation. That's who you baptize, those that will confess with their tongue that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised them from the dead. What you said earlier about when we think about presidents, when we think about different things, this is really important here because 
in the American idea, Joe Biden being the president, he's not my lord. Joe Biden is not my lord in any way. I mean, Joe Biden, he does not have the authority to command me to do much. I don't know of anything he can command me to do directly. You know what I mean? I mean, and and, and there's this part of where when we think I about I mean, in real ways, a Roman soldier had more authority to, right. to act mean, as somebody's lord than, than Joe Biden does. And we've grown up with the idea of, you know, of, and so there's this part of it where, I mean, and, and you when you look at what people try to do with the gospel and try to do with things, it's like they'll compare Jesus to prophets or, you know, there's the listening to people who have good ideas. You know, when Joe Biden comes and he gives the State of the Union, he talks to the American people, and he's trying to convince them to follow him because he doesn't have authority over them. And that is fundamentally different than here. I mean, just that is this, and that's why, I mean, I think your point is so significant is because all of this is building up to the fact of Jesus isn't saying, here's some things that you should do. Here's the way you should order your life. He's not, he's not giving you good ideas. He's commanding you on how you should carry out his will. And and that's very, very different from most of the ways we think about leadership. And he specifically, when he says, all authority has been given to me, he's treating them as his servants, as his slaves. And he's saying, as my slave, this is what you are to do. As the church, being the slaves of God, the slaves of righteousness, this is what you're supposed to be doing. I mean, he's giving that universal command because he has the, as their Lord, he has the right to give that command. This is kind of an aside, but I think it's worth mentioning because people are, I've heard people being confused about this. Hopefully none of our listeners are. But when Jesus Christ says, all authority has been given to me, we need to remember it's God the Father that gave it to him. Right, Daniel 7, he approaches the ancient of days, and he receives the authority. And then in Romans or in 1 Corinthians 15, when all of his enemies have been defeated and he comes to defeat the last enemy, which is death, he'll return that kingdom to his father, and then he will have the wedding supper of the Lamb. He will drink the cup with him in his father's kingdom. Right, So that's kind of the completion of those ideas. And so it's really important to not think that somehow Satan was Lord and then Christ became Lord. No. God the Father was Lord, and he gave the authority to God the Son. If anything, some of the things that Jesus Christ was doing before where he was doing some of his miracles and things was sort of him contending with Satan as someone who had taken authority over the earth, and Satan and as the second Adam. God had kind of given authority over some of the earth when he cast him right. into the and, earth. Right, and Jesus as the second Adam vying with him. But in the end, this is a very significant transition where he is being, he is being crowned as king of all things. And it's very, you know, it kind of says that in Matthew 28, where it's saying that, you know, teach them to obey all things that I command you. But that uh, idea of authority and him receiving that authority and him being the, the, him being the Lord, you know, it, we have to recognize to be the Lord means that you are the lawgiver. If you cannot make the law for somebody, you're not their Lord. If you can't tell them this is the right thing to do, this is the wrong thing to do. And in the end, the people that Jesus Christ casts into hell are those who will not accept him as lawgiver. Matthew seven twenty one through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So it doesn't matter how many times you say he's your Lord, which is the dangerous thing about the sinner's prayer, is that, first of all, you're just using it as a title rather than really understanding and confessing that he's Lord. But then you turn around and then you say, well, I don't have to obey him. I don't have to see him as the lawgiver. And Christ says, if you practice lawlessness, meaning that you did not accept my law, then you are cast into hell because it is about authority, and it is about saying Christ has the authority to tell me what to do. That is the gospel. And when I say that's the gospel, that is good news is what the gospel means. And it's good news because his ways are not our ways. His ways are good. His ways are a blessing. His ways are the ways of peace. All the things that it says in Scripture about his ways, it's not like he says, here's my law, and I'm going to give you a law, and I'm going to be a terrible father, I'm going to be a terrible husband, I'm going to give you a law that torments you. 
That is not what Christ does. He gives us the law that is the perfect blessing in terms that the law could be, right? There is no salvation by the law, but the law is a blessing to those who receive it. And so Christ is calling us and saying, I am your Lord. You need to recognize that. And as your Lord, I get to tell you what to do. And if you don't want to hear what God wants to do, he's not your Lord. wants you to do, he's not your Lord. Another verse on this subject is, is in James 4. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? So there he talks about there, there is one lawgiver, and that is, that is Christ. Um, and he, he has all the power to save and to destroy. We, and we need to submit ourselves to him as that lawgiver. And here it's talking as well about there's an aspect of, you know, we talked about how that in our society we don't have that many lords. But one of the pictures we do have of a lord is the father over his children. I mean, a, a father has a really high level of authority over right, his Right, the Bible says children are supposed to obey their parents as unto the Lord. Right. And so, I mean, in, you know, in, in Galatians, it says, what's the difference between a child and a slave until he comes of age? It says nothing. And so there's this, you know, so you can see this picture. And this is, this is one of the things, I mean, I talk to my children about this. Is I have children who are constantly, it's, it's judging each other in ways that they should not be judging each other. Because in the end, they work for me. They do work for me. And so if there's an issue, this is where God says not judging another servant in a way. There's a part of it where you're, you're judging them in a way that you don't have the authority to judge them. And yet at the same time, people use this verse to turn around and say there should be no judging ever. And this verse is not, is not removing the role of any form of judgment at all. It is, but it is the point of, that you have to understand of it is it is talking about that you become the sons of God. And the sons of God are his servants. The sons of God have an obligation to obey their father. And I mean, here when it says, he who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. If what you're saying is, this is what the law said, that's not speaking evil of your brother. Right. That's not judging your brother like it means here. To judge your brother that way means you're coming up with your own law. If you're judging it based on the law that God gave you, you're not speaking evil of the law. Right. You're holding up. You're lifting up the law. You're saying Christ is the lawgiver. And so people use this to say, so we should overlook sin, and that's not what it's saying here at all. It's saying judging the law, meaning you're rejecting the law, that you're saying that the law is bad, that it's not good. You're coming up with other ways to hold your brother accountable. In the church, we should be holding people accountable according to the commandments of God because we say he is our lawgiver. Right. The parent has no problem when the child tells the other, this is what dad said we should do. He doesn't look at him and go, you have no business telling your brother what I said he should do. I mean, this... There's no issue with that at all. You know, in this, in James 4, it says this, and, uh, you know, it also says this in Psalm 37, but, you know, the opposite of, I mean, not the opposite, but related to, or the, the flip side, if you will, of saying Jesus is Lord is being humble yourself, right? James said, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. When we accept that it's his law, that is humility. When we see Jesus Christ as Lord, that is how you, that is our position. Our position is humble. So in, in Psalm 37, verses 10 through 13, For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The wicked plots against the just, and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. And so there's this idea here, right? We hear the meek, the meek inherits the earth. The point there is those who say, I'm not God. God is God. That is what it means to be meek. It doesn't mean that you have to be, like, cowering at things. The Bible also says that every coward has his place in the lake of fire. So when we think about it, it's not saying that you're meek so that you kind of cower back. That's not the picture, the picture is that you're meek, so you say, God gets to tell me what to do. I'm not going to lift myself up and say, I can tell God what to do. I can put myself in this position, I, right, that I'm my own Lord. You have to be meek in order to be saved because that's the opposite of having Jesus Christ as Lord. You're meek. He's Lord. Right. I mean, one of the things we've talked about, I think, in other episodes is it's a misconception that authority gives you value. 
that authority increases your value compared to other people. I mean, in the end, authority just gives you the ability to organize work in a certain way. It's about organizing things. It's about structure. It's about allowing things to be done in a certain way. In fact, Scripture even talks about the person who is greatest among you will be servant of all. So they'll have authority, but they use that to allow themselves to serve others. And so there's this part of where when you talk about meekness, it's not about a lack of boldness. It's that you are not the one who is, it's, you're not going, because you see this. I mean, you see this with you give somebody authority and they, they start ruling over the people under them. They use them for their own pleasure instead of using their authority for the purpose it was given for. And this is not what Jesus Christ does with authority. You see Moses, the humblest man on earth at the time, and he says to the sons of Korah, yeah, the earth will open you up and swallow you up. That's right. He is meek. And that doesn't mean that he's not bold. That doesn't mean that he's not doing things that are significant, that he's not leading the people. But in the end, he's saying, God, you're gone, and I'm not. Right. That's he's, what meekness is. He's not doing it for himself. It is not for his own pleasure, for his own purposes. And meekness really is fulfilling the role that you've been given. Moses was given the role to lead the people. That means that there's certain behaviors he had to have. I remember I had an employee once that – I mean, I hired him to be a salesman, and he really liked to do other things. And so I had to go in at one point and go, no, you're paid to do this. This is what you need to be doing. You cannot be doing these things that you want to do. And they might be good, and they might be useful, but it doesn't matter. That's not what you're here for. Did I just get fired? No. <laughs> that was years ago. Or last week. <laughs> I had an employee once. <laughs> you do recognize that. Oh, I did. I was, I, was, I, was like, I was like, maybe he did it with someone else also. I hope he did. I just thought I'd be nice if I'd call you out your name. <laughs> but the point of meekness is you accept the role you're given. And so you can be an elder and be meek. You can be a king and be meek. David was meek. You can be also, you can be the, the person who's emptying chamber pots and be meek, right? I mean, meekness is you're doing the role that you're given, not that that means that role can't be to lead all the Israelites out of Egypt. Right. I remember hearing a, a pastor give an illustration of talking about a time when he went to go riding a horse. And, and so he climbs up on this horse. It's not his horse, it's, but he's, he's a very experienced rider. He's done lots of riding. He gets up on this horse and then he kicks it really hard in the flanks in order to make the horse go. And it was a much finer horse than any horse he'd ever been on before because what happened is this horse took off and left him there. It just... I've had that happen to me before. And, well, <laughs> very and, painful. And so he gets up and he's talking to the owners and, and he's like, what just happened there? And they said, oh, that was a meek horse. You don't have to kick it like that to make it respond. You just give it gentle taps, and it'll do what you want. And it was just – so it was this nice conjunction of incredible power, and yet that was meekness. Right. And because he didn't know how to control it, he gave it – he instructed it to use his, all of its power. His, ex his expectations for how you treat horses were different than the what this horse had been trained to do. Right. In James, it talks about us being brothers, and, and that's a theme that, that we'll explore a little more as we go. You can see that in 1 John 5, verses 2 through 5. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And so, I mean, here it's talking, I mean, this is a, this is a pretty, sorry, this is a pretty straightforward picture. My children are children after my flesh, and my children have the weaknesses of my flesh. Those who are born of God, they overcome the world. They are born of God. And it is, it is not, I mean, we understand what it means to be born of someone, is that you have, you receive their nature. You receive, I mean, you you come from them. There are things that, that flow into you from them. And Scripture is saying that you understand this is who it is, and it's tying this to the authority of God, and it's tying this to that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And I think one of the things that, that people go, oh, yeah, you know, this is the victory that overcame the world, our faith. And they act like that, that faith is somehow separate from obedience, Right now, the church is not overcoming the world because we go, oh, we're overcoming the world by our faith. 
But this is what faith produces. It produces obedience to the commandments of God, and obedience to the commandments of God is how you overcome the world. It's not like you have this mystical faith that overcomes the world. It's that you see Jesus as Lord, you have the faith that Jesus is Lord, and so then you turn around and you act like Jesus is Lord, and so you obey his commandments. And number one, that means all of a sudden you're seen as loving your brother. Because you look when Jesus Christ in Matthew 25, when he divides the sheep and the goat, he goes, who's the sheep? Those who, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was homeless and you gave me shelter. And then, and those who didn't do that are the ones that are the goats that are separated. And so the reality is when you see Jesus Christ as your Lord, then you obey his commandments. And obeying his, your, his commandments, you love your brother and as you love your brother, this is how the world is overcome. But you don't overcome the world just by some mystical faith. You overcome the world by having faith that Jesus is Lord, that he is the lawgiver. He's the one that gets to command things. That's how the faith overcomes the world. We've kind of separated that. But the context of it is, this is how we, you know, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. And so that's how our faith overcomes the world. You can't separate faith from understanding the authority if you think that the church is going to overcome the world. And that's basically what we've been doing for the last 120 years, 150 years in the United States, is we've separated faith from obedience. And so then we go, but the church doesn't overcome the world. It can't overcome the world. Everything must just get worse and worse. No, the reason it gets worse and worse is because we have separated faith from authority. And this is the argument of James when he's talking about those what can be considered controversial passages, talking about faith and works. And in a sense, it's it's like if you can define faith in in theological terms one way, and you can define good works in theological terms another way, and they're those they're, they don't all you're not using the same words to match. But then what James is saying is when you go out in the wild and you look for faith, every time you find true faith you find good works. And if you don't find good works, then there is no faith. That's what he's saying. So you have these two independent theological concepts, but in reality, every time they actually exist, they're existing together. This is important because you have these pictures of, of sons and sons obeying their father. And there's a part of it where if you look in the church today, the church complains about there are no rules, there's just relationship, and they want to reject the law well, of God. They don't complain about that. They like that. <laughs> They complain about the law of God, and they say there are no rules. There's just relationship. But there's this part of it where, I mean, it doesn't even, it doesn't even make sense from a straightforward view. If you have someone who is the Lord of the earth, and, God, and then he comes and he adopts you, and he brings you into his family, the idea that the Lord of the earth, whom everyone has an obligation to obey, that once you become a part of his household, that you can disobey his laws, and then, in fact, there aren't even a greater level of law for you because he's looking at you now as as children and he's teaching you more he has a you know i have a greater interest in my children's lives than i do in the the kid who comes over from next door and plays in my yard and there's this part of it where i mean they're just even denying the fundamental nature of what scripture expresses about these relationships and pretending like they they also are not about authority and when we think about authority and you said this picture of god being a father I mean, what we have to understand is that salvation is about changing that nature of the authority. For instance, in Romans 3, 19 through 20, it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. When you're not saved, the law is administered by a judge and the judge is saying you're guilty you're guilty you're guilty you're guilty and that's what paul writes in romans 3 right by the law you recognize your guilt when god is your judge and you see the law all you can get from that is guilt but when you actually come to salvation your relationship with god changes so the administration of that authority changes no longer, and when we think of a judge, you think of somebody outside the household, right? When you think of the Lord, the Lord is the one that's in charge of the household. That's the Lord. So all of a sudden you've been brought into his house when you acknowledge that he's Lord, when you confess that he's Lord. I'll use that term. 
So when you confess that he's Lord, all of a sudden you're no longer seeing him as outside and external and a judge. You are now seeing him as the leader of your household. And those who, how you treat people in the household is very different. And salvation is that change from God being your judge to God being your Lord. Because if you reject him as Lord, he is still your Lord, so he will judge you. I mean, when you think about that in the judge, the judge is primarily interested in administering the law and causing the law to be fulfilled. A father is interested in the betterment of his sons. A father, a father, which is not separate from them fulfilling the law, right? But I mean, but in the end, it is. But it's also different in how he. I mean, his when he, when the, he walks into the courtroom and he sees a person, he doesn't say, "Tomorrow morning, I need to wake them up and I need to spank them and I need to remind them of these things. I need to teach them this. I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to instruct them." He doesn't say that. I mean, or I've got the, this, 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 and this for them to do tomorrow, right? He's which is have, also part of being. The Lord, right, and so I mean, he, the judge has none of that view towards that individual who he is condemning, but he has all of those views toward the one who is his son. In Ephesians two one through three, he says, "And you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh." fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So when you're saved, you stop being a child of wrath, which is a child that's under the judgment, right, with God as your judge, and you start to become a child of obedience. You start to become part of that member of that household. You see God as your father, which changes how he applies the law. It doesn't change the law. It doesn't change what God says is right, but it very dramatically changes how that administration looks because the authority, the the relationship with the authority that's imposing the law changed. And we can see this in First John three one. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. And so, this is talking about two things in particular. One is just what we've been trying to stress is. Do we understand what it means to be called the children of God? And you can you can destroy that picture by going, there's no obligation for us to obey his word. There's no obligation for us to do these things. That is not true. The manner of love that he has shown to us is that he sends his Holy Spirit into the world who's going to teach us, who's going to cause us to be holy, who's going to sanctify us. Not that we obey him perfectly, but that we are changed so that we can begin to obey him and please him. And at the same time, this gives us enmity with the world. And it gives us where the world does not know us because, again, the, wor- because we, the world are the children of wrath who view him as a judge and as a judge only. And they cannot understand the nature of our relationship with him. You know, when you talk about the behold, that the, look at what God's done. He's called us the children of God. And you, you say, well, you know, do understand what that means Part of understanding what that means is, like Dan was talking about, understanding what the alternative is, understanding what the alternative of not being called his children is, meaning, hey, you're, <laughs> you're just somebody there who is to be judged. And specifically, yeah, you're a child of wrath. And so when we think about that, when we think that that relationship changes, I mean, it's, it's important why we did a, a podcast on, you know, why spank? And the reality is spanking's really important in the church because otherwise people don't understand who God is. The reality is every father at some level, whether they do a good job, whether they do a bad job, it, at some level every father constrains the sin of their children because even if it's just because it, it, it annoys them. And so they do it out of their own selfishness. But every father at some level constrains the sin of their children. But what the people in the church should be doing is going, this is who God is. This is what happens when you're saved. He's no longer your judge. He's now your father. And as your father, he won't spare the rod because he doesn't despise his children. Every son that God receives, he will scourge is the promise of Scripture. Because God is saying, you're now a child. So it's not like the person who stands before the judge and the judge isn't trying to fix them. They're just trying to punish them. So that the rest, you know, it says in throughout Deuteronomy, it says that the reason that you do the punishments in Deuteronomy is not so much for that person. It's so that the others see and fear. 
And so you turn around and you do this. You put the person to death. You beat them with rods. You do all these things so that the other people see and fear. You cut off their finger because they, you know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a finger for a finger, whatever. You do all those things so that other people should fear. So the reason that judge judges why he treats the children of wrath that way is to get to constrain sin. The reason that he judges his children differently is because he's trying to get them to change and be a different person. And so that relationship, I mean, the, the nature of the authority changing with the gospel is, I mean, you know, John, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. I mean, that's what John's he's bursting out with emotion going, look at this. Do you see what God did? He's no longer our judge. He's now our Father. Can you believe that? When we think of judge, we should recognize he's also the judge of nations. And that relationship changes, too, because it's not just individual that he becomes, he's your father, or he's your judge, and then he becomes your father. He's also was the judge of nations, and now he becomes the husband of the church. So that's also the relationship change. So like in Psalm 110, when, and this is even about Jesus Christ coming, right, and he, how he's going to put all his enemies, he's going to make them his footstool, under his footstool. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. So there he's saying, I'm not just judge of individuals. I'm judge of nations. And then consider how he treats the church. Because he doesn't treat the church. The church is a nation, a people who were not a people who are now the people of God. The church is a nation, but he doesn't say, I'm going to judge you with wrath and I'm going to kill your king. And I'm going to put, he goes like in Revelation 21, nine, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. He's not looking and saying, this is a, a nation that I'm going to destroy. He's going, this is a nation that is my bride. And it's a city, right? It's a city yeah, it's a city down. that's coming down. And so you have all these pictures. So we shouldn't just think that collectively or individually he changes from being our judge to our father. He also changes from being the judge of the nation to the bride of the or to the husband of the church. And that's that's also the same thing. The same again, the law doesn't change. The reason that Christ is going to execute the kings in the days of his vengeance is because they're disobeying the law. But when he has a bride, he washes his bride in the water of the word. He prepares her. Again, as a husband, he's husbanding her, which means to, to care for her and to, to strengthen her. And it's like a, you know animal husbandry. It means to cause your, your flock of animals to flourish. That's what husbandry means. And, and as the husband of the church, he's causing the church to flourish. He no longer treats her as a king and as a judge. He treats her as, as his bride. And you can see this as well with Sarah, right, who called Abraham Lord and Scripture. I mean, I mean, this is this is not even something that this isn't like something that isn't hinted at until all of a sudden in the end. Sarah, Sarah called Abraham her Lord. And he says, to you know, who you should who you Christian women should be like and the church should be like because Christ is the head of the church. Christ, uh, you know. Christ is the head. In Ephesians 5, which is talking about, you know, the church the church together, right? That the great mystery that the two become one. And Paul says, and this is the mystery. It's Christ in the church because the church is the bride of Christ. In Christ, when he goes to the cross and he pays the bride price, right? I mean, that paying of the bride price changes his relationship with the nation of the church that he gathers together and creates a people and makes it a, a nation that was not a nation, a holy nation, a righteous nation. And, you know, that's what he came to do. He came and died so that his authority over the people changed from being a judge to being a husband. And this is important to understand when you look at the world and you look at the church, when the church goes, why doesn't God save us out of this? It's because God is saying, my bride, I've set her over my over this world to set it in order. He's actually given us a job to do. He's given us the means by which to do it. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. He's given us these he's things. He's transferred the authority from Matthew 28 and the Great right. Commission. And so there's this part of it where I mean, so when we don't understand this, that this is about authority, we end up not understanding marriage. We end up not understanding what the church should be doing. We end up complaining about what our husband has given us to do as opposed to actually doing that work. 
because we don't understand that this is a reasonable thing for our husband to ask his church to do, to set the world in order. And then all of a sudden we go, but men and women are the same. We go that women should be pastors. I mean, everything starts to break down in the society when you lose this idea that God is no longer the judge, the church. God is no longer the judge of the church. He's now the husband of the church. And yes, it's just been betrothed. They're not married yet. The The church will be taken up and the wedding day will come. But right now what is happening is that he's preparing his bride and he's preparing her. And and when we don't understand that, that change in authority, we don't understand what marriage should look like. We don't understand the responsibilities of a husband. We We start to think that if the husband tells his wife to do something, that he's being cruel. He's being like a judge. He's being like a lord over her instead of a husband because this is what husbands are supposed to do. They're supposed to be guiding their wife. They're supposed to be doing it not to to get something out of her, but they're supposed to be doing it to build her up and to make her stronger and to make her her be more obedient to God. That's what husbands still have a duty to do before God. Among the things that you could say that we don't understand, if we if we miss this connection, if we miss how authority is central to the gospel, is we don't understand the Christian life. We don't understand what it means to grow in faith. A lot of what we've talked about with relation to authority in the gospel is about how somebody gets saved, but it the the way that somebody's faith works out is also tied to authority. If you say that's a starting point, then don't expect that your growth in Christ changes. I mean, a lot of it is you you learn more about Christ and you grow in faith by learning more about how his authority applies to you, what he has authority over, how that authority extends to everything, like he says at the end of Matthew. I mean, one of the, the episodes that happens earlier in Matthew um, is— it, illustrates this point really well. So Matthew 8, 5 through 10. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority having a soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. So this is just a perfect little vignette in the book of Matthew for all of these things we've been talking about with authority. You have this centurion who comes, and he asks something from Jesus, and Jesus says, fine, I'll come do it for you. And then the centurion backs up and says, you don't have to do that, because I know how authority works. He appeals to his own life experience. I'm a soldier. I know how authority works. I'm under authority, and I have people who are under authority to me. I say to somebody, jump, and he says, how high? I get it. I know how authority works. So all you have to do is say the word. He recognizes Jesus doesn't he, – he understands something about the way that Jesus can heal people, that Jesus doesn't have to come and physically touch them. Jesus doesn't have to come and break out a bag of medicine. He doesn't have to do anything other than just speak. He says, I see a guy who has authority over sickness or, you know, you know this person's tormented, possibly demons. But whatever is tormenting his servant, he says, oh, you have – I understand you have authority over it. Just say it. It'll be done. I know how this. I know how this game works. And then the text tells us Jesus marveled at that. So when you have the Son of God who marvels at something, that's worth taking pause over, because that's just a really incredible moment. And specifically, what he then says is, "I have not found such great faith in all of Israel." The centurion likely wasn't Jewish. I mean, he. You know, he could have been, it doesn't say, but he very well was not Jewish. But yet Jesus is looking at him going, you understand that I have authority, and that is what great faith is. When we think about growing in faith and we pray to grow in faith, 
How often in growing in faith do we think we need to understand God's authority better and how he does things and how the, the level of control he has over things? In the church, too often we want to, to reduce his sovereignty, right? We want to go, oh, yeah, you know, there's lots of churches that go, he's not even sovereign in who are his. He can't, he's not even in sovereign in having compassion on whom will have compassion that you get to choose. But here he's going, this guy knew, and, you know, it may have been demons, but it also could have just been sickness. And he's going, you control, you wouldn't have known bacteria, but you control bacteria. You control all things. There's nothing in it. And then you contrast that with the apostles. The apostles, when Jesus Christ is sleeping in the boat, in the storms, and they're going, oh, it's going to, you know, the boat's going to sink. We're going to all die. And you're just sitting there sleeping, and he wakes up and he says, be still. And they immediately stop, and terror falls upon them because they don't have the faith of the centurion. They don't think that Jesus can just speak and say this. Who is this? Who is Even this? the wind can, and waves obey Exactly. Him. It's like the opposite response. So, And that doesn't mean they didn't have faith. It meant that they had small faith. Growing in faith is growing in our understanding of the authority of God more and more and understanding it. And not just understanding it in a theoretical way, because it's really easy to think, oh, God is sovereign. But then you get into the case where where you're going, um, yeah, but my child, they don't seem to respond to the rod, so should I keep using the rod? Or you go, my boss, I'm going to lose my job unless I lie for him, or I, I cover it up. Or my boss will be really mad at me, so I'm not going to say anything to my boss's boss, right? You know, in the real world that we have to live in, the way you mature in faith is you go, God's, God has this. He's got this under control. This is not outside of his will. This is not outside of his knowledge. You witness to somebody, and they walk away, and they never say anything. You go, this is the sovereignty of God. I have to obey. I have to do what I should do. But in the end, God is in control of these things, and and that's faith. And we tend to separate that from growth in faith, but that is how you grow in faith, is you see God's control more and more in the world. And a lot of times we think we can talk about how this person, you know, Jesus is the Lord of all, but we don't see how, how or we don't then turn around and say, okay, Jesus is Lord of all, so this unbeliever, he can cause this unbeliever to do Right, like Nebuchadnezzar, right, the most powerful man in the world. Nebuchadnezzar goes and he he cuts out the entrails of an animal to figure out whether he should go to Jerusalem or not. And then all of a sudden he gets this feeling, I'll go to Jerusalem anyway, and he ignores what the signs are because God directed him to go to Jerusalem. It didn't matter. God could cause him to overcome even what he saw was the way that he was supposed to be directed because God controls he turns the king's heart like a watercourse. God controls all things. And growing in faith is understanding that more and more. Because understanding that more and more ties directly with obedience. Because the more you understand it as God who judges, it is God who pours out, there's no natural consequences to sin. That's how God has ordered the world. That's God working in the world that there's consequences to sin. And the more that you recognize God is working everything in the world, the more you go, well, I could do that in sin, but it's going to go bad for me even though in worldly eyes it looks like it would go much better for you. And I think, I mean, this idea of understanding that verse and tying it to faith and tying it to authority is really important because it touches on a lot of different things we've talked about. I think you mentioned, like, whether, you know, if I don't lie for my boss, he's going to fire me. There's just, I mean, there's a lot of times where our ability to understand the way that God can control the world stops us from fearing stops us from fearing the wrong thing and allows us just to do the work that's in front of us. There's other times where as we increase in that, it increases our ability to understand work we can even, the type of work we can accomplish. You know what I mean? Like what is possible? You know what I mean? I mean, because when you look at this, like you said, this centurion said, I can take my real world experience and translate it to the unseen things. And there's this part of it where, so I mean, when God... By the work that God has you do today, you can leverage that to understand greater things tomorrow. I mean that you know that, and if I mean if if you can't right, I mean right now I can in my life look at things that ten years ago I would not have been able to have the faith to do. And you can see these things in your life if you are a Christian and you have been a Christian for any amount of time. 
you should be able to look back in your life and see things that God has shown you by faith that allowed you to do greater things, that allowed you to understand more. That is, that is what a growth in that is what growth in faith is. And so, I mean, there's just this part of where you sh- these things should be able to be connected because it is what it means to grow in faith. And again, you know, it's obedience to the commandments of God because we have faith and because we're growing in faith, we become more obedient. And that's how the world's overcome by the church. Because why would God allow us to overcome the world when we're disobeying? Now, he does. But he does it when you're not, He does it when you're not getting worse, but when you're getting better, right? Because he blesses that. And so he can cause that to, that little shreds of obedience that he blesses that to encourage you, just like a father and a child. This is how parents work with their children all the time. And yet, yet there's just not this, you know, we, we think, oh, we should have victory in the world, but we don't have to obey God. No, you have to have faith. Faith means you obey. Obedience means that you overcome the world. This is how God I mean, the problem in the church, the problem that the church has so little effect on the world around us is because we're incredibly weak in faith. And one thing as we're, as we're talking about growing in faith, one thing that we should be growing in is, is in our delight for the law of God, uh, where we're acknowledging Christ as our lawgiver. We're delighting in the laws that he gave us written in the scriptures. There's a lot of places in the Bible that talks about that, but one that talks about that a lot is Psalm 119. And this is verses 97 through 102. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way, that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me. And, and if we're someone that calls Christ Lord, we should be able to look in our lives and see where we're meditating on him, where we, are, where we are gaining that wisdom that's contained in his commandments that makes us wiser than the ancients. Right, and even just that, you know, it's through use that you're able to discern good and evil. It's that obedience to those commandments. That's how you become wiser than your enemies. You know, we recently did a, a podcast on Jordan Peterson, and you look at people in the church are going, oh, he has such wisdom. Well, it really comes down to a pretty basic thing. We don't want to obey God, so we don't have wisdom. We don't want to think about his commandments because his commandments are what make us wise. And so the church lacks wisdom. It doesn't have more understanding than its teachers. It's being taught by the world, things like justice, things like due process. These things are taught by the world to the church. What a shame that is on the church and what a weakness of faith that is in the church when it has to be taught these things that it taught the world. And it has to come back. It's like we've regressed back to kindergarten, so we're being taught by the world things that the world was taught by the church. And it's because we, have, we, we don't have the faith, we don't have the strength of faith to go, yeah, his commandment seems really strange here, but I'm going to do it anyway because it's his commandment. And one thing I know is he's smarter than I am. And then all of a sudden, when you have that attitude, you become wiser than your enemies. You become wiser than your teachers. And there's a part of it where as you do that and you see the result from doing it because God will show you the – because at the end, God, God's ways do work. You do those things and you see them work. And now you believe more firmly. Your faith is increased because there is a part of it where seeing God work increases your faith. And it allows you to go – so whenever you see another situation, there are other situations where you start to understand through your use how to apply this in different ways. You see somebody doing something and you go, here's what you need to do because you now by your faith can actually say this is the right. I mean, you can speak with confidence. You can speak with boldness. You can speak because your faith has been increased because you've obeyed God because now your understanding has increased as well. And I mean, kind of, I don't want to say a correction, but one thing to make sure that people recognize with that is when you're when you're exercising at the beginning, it's like a two-year-old or a three-year-old or a four-year-old. The parents give immediate feedback, right? <laughs> you go, I've been, I've been asking you to do that. You did that. Good job. Good job. 
but you don't say the same thing to an 18 year old you just kind of and so the the feedback loop gets to be a lot more detached as you get older when you're young in the faith you go and obey and god is very gracious to show you that hey that was a good thing and you see it as you get more mature in the faith you do things and go i don't know what's going to happen with this but that's okay i know that god has it i i I can see with the eyes of faith, so I don't need to see with physical eyes. And as we mature, it becomes more and more like that, that you just go, well, I've done this before, and God was faithful, and it's obvious this is what I should do. I don't know how it's going to turn out, but I'm going to go do what I should do, and and God God sees it all. He knows it all. I don't need to be told. And when you think about God and his authority in that sort of way, and, and, and you pull it all together god is a father and and all these things it changes it changes how you obey it changes your prayer life changes how you approach him it changes your motivation to talk to other people about god it just it changes so much when you start with the fact of the only reason i'm saved is god decided to extend some mercy towards me and he is coming from a position of authority where he didn't have to do that but he did Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Thank you for listening. The The heart of the gospel is authority. It's turning the authority that you think you have in your own life and turning it over to God and say, you're a God and I'm not. You're wise and I'm not. You're righteous and I'm not. I need these things. I need you to control me because when I control myself, it doesn't end well. Salvation is about accepting and believing and confessing that Jesus is Lord. And that means that you treat him as Lord, which means that you walk in his ways. Authority is central to the gospel. Thanks for joining us. This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching.